Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome back to the Hindu Studies channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. You can find out about my background at rajbalkaran.com. More importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Borayin Larios, who is Assistant Professor at the Institute for South Asian, Tibetan, and Buddhist Studies in Vienna. Hello, Borayin. How are you? Hello, Raj. I'm very well. Thank you. And thank you for the invitation as well. Uh, My pleasure. Our pleasure here. We are speaking. Uh, we are speaking to him about an open access book that you can all access by clicking the attached link to this post. Uh, the title of his publication is "Embodying the Vedas: Traditional Vedic Schools of Contemporary Maharashtra." So this is obviously a fascinating uh, read for anyone interested in Hindu studies or Indian thought and culture. Arguably. Um, the Vedas, uh, or this idea of something being Vedic or not, is one of the most pervasive uh, themes of what we may call uh, Hinduism today. And we'll certainly dig into that. But why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about how this book project came about for you? Right. So, um, well, it's it's a project that took quite a while uh, to to see the light of the day. Um, I started actually with my master thesis on uh, one particular Vedic school, um, looking at one particular Vedic school. And the the reason why I was interested in that is because I came to hear Vedic recitation um, for the first time sometime in my teens. And that really kind of uh, blew my mind, literally. I I was really impressed by these Brahmin priests reciting um, these mantras at such a, you know, uh, unison and 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 um, yeah, how to say it? It was it was just um, really um, fascinating experience to hear how the pronunciation was per- perfect and they were singing in a group. And the the, the reason why I was really fascinated because it was the, the feat of memory. I could not believe that someone could uh, recite from memory for so long, right? So that was the, the thing that sort of triggered me um, to look more into um, the Vedic tradition. And so I, I first uh, did my MA um, trying to study one of these um, schools um, so to speak, anthropologically. And then I realized that there was not so much uh, literature on the subject at that time. Um, so I, I sort of thought that would be a great dissertation project and decided to um, look deeper into these schools in Maharashtra by expanding the network, so to speak. I had uh, so far looked at one school um, but I heard that there were many others, so I wanted to also look at these other schools and also see the differences between the different schools. So that was the 
the main motivation there. And would you say then that's the primary aim or theme of the book, to look at these schools and survey um, their similarities, differences, and the extent to which they preserve tradition? Yes, definitely. I mean, that's, that's sort of, so to speak, um, one of the core aims of, of the book is to look at, you know, how is this transmission of knowledge um, that we've perhaps read in books um, still alive today, right? And how, how the ideal that we read from, say, Sanskrit uh, literature, um, how does that uh, look like in, in contemporary India? and well, in, in Maharashtra in particular. Um, so it's a, it's a book about the oral transmission of the Vedic tradition, of the Vedas, as, as, as um, um, bodies of sound. And it's also about the Brahmins themselves. So it's an, an, an ethnography in the sense that it looks at, at not just as the, these schools as institutions, but it also tries to look at Brahmins um, themselves and what they are trying to do in contemporary India. So why don't you tell us, for the purposes of your book and your research, what you mean and what you refer to as the Brahmins? Because some of our podcasts, specifically um, the last one we did on the snake and the mongoose, really problematized that idea, at least in uh, ancient India. So for the sake of our listeners, when you say the Brahmins, what do you mean? Right, that's a, that's a tricky question somehow. I mean, I also try to problematize this in in my in my own um, book by um, um, by complexifying how Brahmins themselves have portrayed themselves throughout throughout history, so to speak. Right, and so how do they construct their identity, which is also an important part of, of the book, uh, especially at the at the end. Um, but what I mean by, by Brahmins is um, traditional families who, um, who were born into the, the um, Brahmin uh, caste, right? They have a, a Brahmin birth. And um, of course, I, I don't mean all the Brahmins in Maharashtra, uh, but I mean those Brahmins who consider, consider themselves orthodox and um, actually learn the Vedic recitation. Um, so, um, yes, I, I mean Vaidikas in that sense. So Brahmins who um, learn to memorize the Vedic texts in particular. But I do problematize uh, the, the, the notion of, of the Brahmin and, and who, who I mean by Brahmins in, in the book itself. Um, but I hope I, I sort of pointed to, to an answer there. Mm -hmm. For sure. Now, would you say then that uh, the Brahmins that you, that you research, uh, that their primary function is to actually preserve these Vedic utterances? Yes. Yes, that's, that's the whole aim of, um, of these, these schools, actually. So it's interesting because very often uh, when, I, when I used to, talk to people about my project, they would think that in these schools, children would learn uh, Sanskrit and how to, you know, interpret the Vedic um, scriptures. But the truth is, um, these, these schools are um, similar in that regard to, um, for example, madrasas, where, where children are uh, basically trained to reproduce the sounds of the Veda um, and not so much the, the um, content or the, yeah, the semantic content of um, those mantras and those hymns. So um, I, I, I think it was Fritz Stahl who, who once said they're like walking tape recorders. Um, so yes, the, the, the main aim of, of this uh, traditional Brahmins is to um, A, learn to, to memorize and reproduce these this texts um, and to, to pronounce them accurately uh, and to also learn to employ them in ritual. Those are the two main aims. And um, the exegesis, so to speak, of, 
of the Vedic mantras is sort of a, a secondary or, or a, an, an additional branch of study that uh, does not necessarily belong to these schools. So this is, um, this is a, a profound feature of what we call Hinduism and definitely worth discussing, particularly given your background and research in this book. Um, as you mentioned, I believe in your introduction, uh, when we refer to Hinduism as the oldest living tradition, really what we mean is Vedic religion. Um, and the the oldest living tradition, really what we mean is this um, presumably unbroken lineage of oral transmission uh, from student, from teacher to student of the Vedic revelation. You make an important distinction in your book between the Shastrika and the Vedika, and just so our audience is clear, it's the Shastrika whose job it is to understand the exegesis of what is meant by the utterance. And there's an entire class of, of Brahmins whose sole function it is to preserve the precise utterance for the sake of um, ritual effect. Now, maybe you can tell us more about why on earth a culture would invest so much in, in the preservation of the utterance and not necessarily the meaning thereof. Right, so one, one very important uh, um, concept in the Vedic tradition is that um, sound itself, right, the, the, is, is, is the meaning, right? It is uh, what's worth preserving. It, it is what's powerful, right? And um, especially if you look at certain um, uh, corpuses, as already um, Fritschdahl had shown, um, they don't necessarily mean anything as in semantic content. For example, if you look at the Samavedic songs, right, where you have um, basically um, utterances that, that don't have any semantic meaning, right? Uh, so there, the, the power is in the sound itself. And therefore, um, the 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 sound needs to be protected uh, and be, be transmitted as accurately as possible. Um, when you say power, um, you don't mean power to hold or produce meaning. So, what kind of power do you mean in this context? Well, um, it's it's a, it's a rather complex notion, but um, the first the first thing is is this Vedic recitation right um, is is meant to preserve the order of the universe ruta, right and so um, with with this um, with the ritual and the recitation of these mantras basically the whole universe is um, being preserved from uh, allowing the sun to rise to the rain to fall and so on and so forth so it's it's a, a kind of a participation in this cosmic um, um, cycle, right? And, and for Brahmins, it's part of their, their um, they're paying their, their depth, uh, their, their, uh, their runa, their uh, depth to uh, the ancestors um, and, and to uh, keeping on this universe functioning, basically. Um, so uh, it's considered to, to recite, right, to this Swadhyaya, this um, um, recitation of sacred text came to be considered uh, Brahma Yajna, so the, the sacrifice of and to Brahman, right? And um, yeah, so there's, there's also, um, for those of you who are, who are more interested in, in the topic, there's, there's a, a French uh, scholar, uh, Charles Malamud, who, who wrote this uh, book, Cooking, Cooking the World, or Cooking the Universe, um, where, he, where he explains how Swadhyaya, this, this uh, recitation, uh, is, is part of, of uh, the, the balance uh, of the universe, basically. How did you end up in Maharashtra and why, how did that become a focus of the schools you looked at? Um, incidentally, I, I was there in 2012 for Sanskrit training um, at the American Institute of Indian Studies in Pune. So I am somewhat familiar with the lay of the land there, but tell us why Maharashtra? 
Weimar Russia, it, it's, it's a, almost a mere coincidence. Um, the first school I, I, I was invited to uh, observe uh, in Satara uh, for my uh, master's thesis uh, was, was or is based in Maharashtra. And um, basically, thanks to their invitation and generosity, I was able to, um, you know, stay in their school. And then from, from there, I create this, this network of, um, uh, of other schools that I could, uh, you know, visit. So um, it, it was almost coincident, coincidental. And then I also, I also, you know, saw that, there was not so much um, work being done on Maharashtra in terms of the Vedic tradition. So it was a, it was um, a win-win situation in the sense that uh, had I gone to, for example, uh, Kerala to visit the Nambudri Brahmins um, as Stahl and others have done, then um, I could have I could not have compared um, that to to. To, to the classical, so to speak, uh, works that have um, been written on the subject. Whereas in Maharashtra, there was nothing, nothing on Vedic education, at least that I could um, find. So uh, it was kind of virgin territory for me as well. Um, and yes, uh, over the years, Maharashtra has sort of stayed my, my um, field of, of work. And uh, it's a place I enjoy very much. I, I mean, as, as as you know, Pune uh, is one of the um, mo more uh, welcoming cities in, 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 in India and comfortable to, uh, to stay. Um, and so that was another plus. <laughs> and of course, its patron deity is none other than Ganapati Ganesha himself, Lord of Wisdom. So perhaps it was a wise choice to do your research yeah. there. What, um, what was the process like um, in terms of your encounters with these students and these Vedic priests? Tell us a little bit about um, barriers, if there are any, or the idea of preservation or secrecy or openness. And tell us about your experience um, researching. Right. So I have, I have a, a part of my, of my um, introduction is... is um, is sort of sort of explaining my experience as um, an ethnographer and a participant in uh, in these schools and how I, on the one hand, uh, received enormous um, generosity and uh, welcoming to these schools, um, but on many other occasions it was a territory difficult to navigate. A, because I was a foreigner and therefore, uh, according to the traditional notions, I was um, not necessarily considered to be pure. Um, some of these uh, Brahmin schools have very strict rules of uh, ritual purity and therefore, uh, I, you know, uh, a foreigner or, or just anyone who is not a Brahmin uh, is, is considered um, sort of a um, a potential danger, at least in the, ritually speaking, to um, to these schools. So it was not necessarily always easy uh, to to approach the schools or to get access to them. Uh, but on the other hand, there was an enormous um, curiosity and generosity of heart, especially from the students, but also from many teachers. Um, so it was it was. Uh, really uh, quite an experience for me to live among these children who, you know, frankly speaking, lead completely different lives than uh, we do, right? In the sense of, of like the childhoods that, um, that we have in, in, in Western countries or even in say modern India versus the, um, the, the lifestyle that they, lead um it just it was a, it was a humbling experience and it was also fascinating to to watch um in terms of like communication it was not always easy because um you know there was a language barrier um i attempted uh learning marathi but um 
I, I must confess I wasn't very successful. And uh, um, so I, I, the communication usually happened uh, either in, in Hindi or English or a mix thereof, uh, sometimes in, in Sanskrit um, uh, for, for those uh, children or teachers who, who actually spoke Sanskrit. Um, but it, but um, it was it was challenging, um, you know, uh, to to have that those conversations sometimes. Um, so in in many cases, I had to rely on um, a translator uh, uh, who could, could who could help me out. Um, but many times, I was just also not necessarily conducting interviews, but just sitting in the classes, observing. Um, you know the daily schedule, observing their uh, their relationship basically between student and and teacher, and I got a lot. I learned a lot just from from sitting around and, and observing. Um, so yes, I guess that that would be an answer. So there is uh, a lot of interesting themes there. Um, I'll ask you a couple of questions, and then you can answer. Um, uh, uh, you, you you can tackle them as you wish. Well, first, a comment. It seems that perhaps you were met with the hospitality that is accorded to a guest, that is proper to a guest in uh, traditional Indian culture. Um, one of the dictums being that the guest, much like the mother and the father and the guru, is like a deity, uh, a divinity uh, coming into your home. Uh, while you were met with the hospitality accorded to the guest, Certainly, uh, that's not tantamount to the access accorded to an, an initiate. This idea of uh, purity and pollution and access. Um, one question that comes to mind is certainly, as an outsider, uh, a foreigner, so to speak, you wouldn't have the uh, requisite ritual purity in the eyes of of this tradition. Now. Is that to say that all Brahmins would have the the purity to access the te these teachings? Um, no, I, I guess, I mean, it depends on what level, right? So there, there are different, like ritual purity is, 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 um, of course, always context dependent and, and there are always sorts of, uh, sort of ways of negotiating that. Um, but just to give you an example, right? Um, uh, with food, which is, which is usually one of the ways in which, in which you uh, get to learn, <laughs> about ritual purity. So in many of these schools, um, when I was visiting there, I was um, offered food, um, you know, and um, I would either be served first and kind of an, in an isolated place, or I would sometimes be served with the students, um, with the Brahmin students, or sometimes I would be asked to go and have food somewhere else, um, right? So because food is such a central um, aspect in which, you know, um, purity and, and hierarchies are, are kind of negotiated. Um, I had very different experiences depending on which school I was or, or even whether other visitors were coming or not. Um, and and to speak about the hospitality, yes, totally, I agree. I mean, that was certainly one one part of like being welcomed and 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 you know atiti devo bhava, so the, you know the the guest is like uh, God. Um, but on the other hand, if 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 I try to stay longer or just be part of their daily life, their daily schedule, then of course um, other things came up, right? So, for example, where would I sleep? Where would I, um, you know, um, uh, take a shower? Things like that, right? Um, so, so it, was, it was interesting on that level because I learned a lot about, you know, what does it mean to negotiate that, that purity? And, and for Brahmins themselves, being in, in the modern world, so to speak, there are a lot of... Um, uh, so there's, there are a lot of uh, uh, tensions regarding what is acceptable and what's uh, not acceptable or negotiable, um, and 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 there's there's um, a whole 
chapter on this as well in the book on ritual purity and for example how they should uh, dress uh, or whether they're allowed to have ice cream or not or watch a movie you know things like that so tell us about um tell our listeners about the requirements of such a one of an initiate of these children who are born in the modern world but are also in a very very different uh space tell us about what it takes to be um a member of this lineal transmission well of course the, the first requirement uh is that you come from a brahmin family right so not everyone gets to gets to go to 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 a vedic school at least the, the schools excuse me that i sur- uh, surveyed except for one and maybe we can talk about it later but um so the first rule is to to come from from a brahmin family back from a brahmin background um ideally uh, you should go to learn uh your own veda so each each uh, brahmin family is born into a particular uh, veda and a particular branch of the veda so a shaka um, and so ideally you would go and learn your own shaka right so if you're born in um in a, say taitriya brahmani uh, taitriya um sorry taitriya uh Jayurveda family, you would go and learn uh, Taitiriya Jayurveda, right? Um, but nowadays, because there, there are um, less and less students available on, and also less and less um, schools, um, you know, students would sometimes go and learn another Veda, uh, depending on what's available. Or another Shaka, maybe the same Veda, but another Shaka. Um, so um, there is flexibility around that. Um, but then, so the but then the the other major requirement is of course the uh, upanayana, which is the um, initiation ceremony uh, or the threat, sacred threat in investiture, uh, which basically is a ritual that um, traditionally was meant um, for Brahmins to uh, start their education. It was their uh, initiation into the Veda, right? So it was when they first heard the Gayatri Mantra uh, whispered into um, their ear and then they could basically start to to learn the, the Vedic canon from that moment onwards. So that is that is still a very important component um, of of uh, Brahmins who want to study there. They, they need to have had their sacred threat uh, ceremony uh, performed. And sometimes they, they do that even, uh, you know, at the school, if they're sent there um, young and, and or too young and have not yet had the, the ceremony, sometimes the schools themselves uh, perform it um, for them, for the families. And then uh, the other requirement is, is basically to live with um, the teacher uh, in the school uh, and uh, dedicating your your life basically or at least the period of your life to learning the vedas um and that that of course varies uh, according to um different factors but um perhaps the most important would be your own capability of mem- uh, how good your memories basically and how fast can you learn um uh, and be the curriculum of of your school um, so depending on which shaka you are learning and depending what your guru says, you would, you would then uh, sort of learn. The, the, I would say the minimum requirement would be to learn the Samhita. Um, uh, but of course, many schools uh, teach and, uh, more than that. Right? And so the, the curriculum is sort of open upwards. There is, you can basically be a student for the rest of your days, if you want to, um, but but um, there are also sort of minimal requirements to um, at least get the title of Vedamurti, which is the the title given in Maharashtra for one who uh, commonly given in Maharashtra for one who, who finishes basically the 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 shaka training or or the basic uh, corpus uh, of recitation. Uh, which is an interesting term uh, as well, and that that's where where I got the um, the idea for the title of the book, 
which is the embodiment of the Veda, right? So how long would a student uh, on average typically take to attain uh, this level of mastery of Veda Murti? Well, um, it's hard to tell. I mean, I have, I have a few figures in the book, uh, depending on the shaka and the curriculum. I would say on average, if, if they actually complete the, the curriculum, is about um, between, I would say, 7 and 12 years. Um, but of course, as I said, you can you can uh, prolong that, uh, and and a lot also um, uh, stop before. So there are different reasons for for interrupting one's studies, but usually um, it is it is uh, an economic one. So it's it's often tied to as soon as they can make money, they they're taken out of the school, or or they themselves want to. Um, start earning money and, and give up their studies. So it has also led to I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And so, and so for such a one that makes it to the uh, Veda Murti status, what is the fate of such a one? Um, do they then go on to professionally um, perform rituals? Right. So there, there are different career options, so to speak, after one finishes one's basic training. Um, so one very... Uh, um, let's say beloved career option is um, become an astrologer, a Jyotishi, which is sort of, sort of like a combination of um, a priest and um, an astrologer. So, so they, they sort of, they're trained as well to determine when is the right time to perform a ritual and then they become family priests. Basically they perform the different Samskaras, the different uh, uh, um, uh, rites of passage for for families, or um, other ceremonies such as such as uh, inaugurating a house, or or the laying of brick for for the first building, and so on and so forth. So they become um, private priests. That's that's one option. Um, the other option is to become a temple uh, priest. Which is which is another um, option. Then the, another one would be um, to to become a teacher yourself and, and establish a school. Um, and and many also just after their their school uh, their their studies at, at the school they they decide to go completely different way and, and like try to get a job say in. Uh, I don't know, uh, an IT firm, right? Even though they've not necessarily had the training to do that, but they would, you know, do uh, an, an additional year of study in, say, uh, business management or whatnot, and then and start a completely different career. Um, but yeah, the, the, I would say the most common would be to um, become a house priest. Uh, yeah. One quick question regarding regarding these priests that become uh, jyotishis, as you say, uh, astrologers. Um, we mean um, electional astrology, muhurta. So they use their their astrological training to elect the right time for rituals, correct? Or do you also mean that they do jataka in terms of, well, this is your life, this is your destiny type thing? Well, they might do both depending on their inclination. 
when I when I say Jyotishi uh, or or the use of Jyotisha is is mostly um, uh, in the sense that someone has an issue in their life or wants to uh, you know accomplish something and they will go to them uh, and then um, they will determine the remedy or the solution for that. So for example, they'll say, okay, you need to um, um, perform this and this um, practice. Um, for example, I don't know, recite this particular mantra and abstain for this, for, from this particular food item and perhaps, I don't know, uh, sexual intercourse on this and this day because this particular planet is, you know, uh, troubling you or something, right? So that's, that's uh, or, or you should perform a yajna uh, for a particular deity, right? So they would, they would sort of suggest different options and, and also depending on the means of the person uh, in order to, to obtain the, the, the desired result. Would you say that, um, would you say that such priests or priests in training, would you say that they are fairly sheltered from modern culture or that they have a dual citizenship and they sort of have this outer worldly side and this other inner Vedic training side? Um, I'd say it's both <laughs> in a way, right? So there's always an effort. If you read the book, there's, there's, a, there's a conscious effort, especially from the teachers to shield students from, from distractions from, from the outer world uh, and from modernity in particular. Um, so, for example, they will not uh, allow them to go out of the school and interact with other um, people unless it's, it's work-related or studies-related. Um, they will um, try to minimize, for example, uh, media consumption such as uh, movies or uh, for those uh, who have access to the internet, basically, you know, to minimize the use of, of technology to, to access um, potentially distracting uh, media and so on and so forth. And on the other hand, they also try to um, be relevant citizens of, of India. And most of them are really aware of the difficulty of, of negotiating uh, you know, being in the world, uh, in this modern world, and at the same time sort of preserving their ancient knowledge. And so it's, it's a tension uh, that's always there. Um, but in, in the case of technology, on the one hand, they will try, for example, to minimize uh, the students from watching TV or, you know, streaming YouTube or whatever. Uh, and on the other hand, they will use technology um, for their advantage. For example, they will um, use recorders or phones to record their recitation and play that back uh, as a way of um, uh, a tool to, to basically to study um, or to preserve or uh, document uh, certain rituals and, and practices. So there, it's not about uh, just technology per se or, or the modern world per se, but, but sort of negotiating how to preserve tradition and the purity of the tradition while at the same time uh, using the, the advantages of, of, um, of modern world, basically. Yeah, the tension is quite profound. Um, may I share a story with you? Please. Actually, uh, I'm currently based in Toronto and just about uh, an hour north of Toronto. Uh, there's a, a suburb called Richmond Hill. There is the Richmond Hill Hindu Temple, which, if I'm not mistaken, is um, the largest Hindu temple in North America. Currently, um, South Indian Tamil um, founding. Uh, most of the, the congregation there is, is a, a, a South Indian um, Tamil-speaking Hindus. I visit the temple uh, fairly regularly. What's interesting is that um, I come from the West Indies and my ancestors are North Indian, so I don't speak a lick of any of the vernaculars there. So I have this, there is this, um, there's this barrier when it comes to language or dress or even food or caste. And, 
Um, they're very welcoming there. It's just that I'm from a very different texture than they are. However, um, with the Sanskrit and the ritual and the 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 the, the, the bhakti elements, I can identify right away. Now, in recent visits there, I've noticed that a couple of the priests that work there, their sons are in training. They've, they're 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 Brahmin born. Um, Toronto-born Brahmins who've undergone the Upanayana, their sacred thread. And you see these young uh, boys uh, who are as Canadian as Canadian can be there. They're, they're children of the West, of the modern age, and they are engaged in training with their fathers in a way that you wouldn't even know what century you're in when you're watching them. And if there was ever a project I'd want to do, you see, I'm a textual scholar, so mm. I have no regrets. I love, love decoding Purana, decoding mythology. I love it. However, uh, I was naive as an undergrad. I didn't even realize that one can get <laughs> credit <laughs> for interviewing people. Um, <laughs> learning about life and, and being a natural extrovert, I, that's what I did when I was distracting myself from my studies, and studies was always textual in my mind. It mm. never, never occurred to me that ethnography, that, 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 that uh, conversation could be a medium for for scholarship at that point. I have no regrets, but if I was to do a, an ethnographic project, I would, I would interview the young men at the Richmond Hill Hindu temple and, and sort of uh, dig into what must be, a, um, I don't know, I don't want to impose my, my, my categories on what their experience, but I imagine it would be a dual citizenship and maybe at times, um, maybe even jarring going from one milieu to the next because they're also enrolled in, in public school in Toronto. By day, so oh. I, it would be fascinating to understand this tension. So I just this as as I was reading your book, this the, these young men came to mind. I thought this is really fascinating to see how this would even work in um, traditional Vedic training uh, in Toronto out of the Gurukula. Now, mm. for our listeners, thank you for indulging the story. For our listeners. Why don't you tell them a little bit about uh, this idea of the Gurukula and very specifically a very, very important concept, um, the Guru Shisha Sambandha. So the, the uh, I guess you'd say the, the teacher-disciple relationship. This is uh, of profound importance, uh, the cornerstone for the transmission of Vedic texts. Um, and I think, it, I think it is something that's worth, um, worth unpacking for our listeners. Yes, yes, uh, indeed, it's it's one of the the, the the I would say one of the most important uh, chapters in the book on how basically a, a student becomes a, a, a teacher, right? Um, by by learning to embody um, the Veda in a way that basically is is mirroring the teacher, right? So the 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 Gurukula, the word Gurukula actually means the, the guru's uh, house or the guru's household or entourage. And um, so the, the transmission of, of the Veda happened uh, since time immemorial, basically, um, through this transmission between father and son. This was the, the traditional way with, um, you know, father and son, if, if we look at if we take uh, the the, um, the the scriptures for for um, as as historical documents in a, in a way, right? Um, and, and so the transmission was within this household in which you would basically not just learn from the mouth of your father um, or your guru in this case, um, but you would also basically do anything uh, that, that was uh, um, required of you in, in the household. Um, so it was not just about learning uh, the, the text, right? It was learning how to be, you know, a, a Brahmin, a Vaidika, which included, I don't know, you know, fetching water or feeding the cows or learning how to um, talk to people so all of this is, is I, I, I would say, very, very important in this tradition to, to basically become or acquire this, this identity. Uh, and, and this is, is still very relevant uh, 
today. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, the model of um, guru and disciple and the whole uh, surrender of one's, um, um, say, identity as an individual for this, this ideal of becoming uh, the embodiment of the Vida. Um, so, I mean, th there's, there's, there's a lot to say about, mm, you know, what, what it means to, to be a, a teacher and a disciple in this context. Um, but, but I would say that, that it is definitely at the core of, um, of, this, of this transmission, right? The, the, the whole Vedic mantras and the whole recitation lies in, in this particular um, relationship. And it's a, it's a very intimate uh, um, pedagogical um, uh, model so to speak, in which you basically become uh, your teacher. That's that's the whole aim to become uh, your your guru. Uh, and and before before that happens, it, it, there's a complete surrender to um, to that person. And you can have more than one guru, of course, but but in in the sense of the, you you are disciple to. Uh, um this this teacher who is um, not just teaching you how to to recite but also is like a father figure right he is um uh, your model basically um to be to 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 emulate so is it the disciples prerogative to emulate the guru become the guru as you speak insofar as the guru is uh, veda murti is that the idea that, 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 that the student's job is to um, emulate the teacher who, um, insofar as the teacher embodies the Vedas, or is it beyond that? Yes, I mean, I, I guess that's, that's the, because the guru is seen as basically the accomplishment of, and the embodiment, or say a walking uh, um, entity of, of these scriptures, of this knowledge, right? Um, but it goes beyond just being uh, the Vedas as a text, um, but also as um, a way of life. So there, there's a lot about the, the discourse is a lot about the, way, the Vedic way of life. To become a Vedika is therefore not just um, to know to perfectly reproduce the text, but also to behave and to act like an uh, ideal Brahmana, right? And, and uh, so that, that, of course, implies um, many things beyond being able to, um, you know, be, be a very excellent reciter or um, a, a, a virtuoso in, in, in ritual, right? Um, so it goes, it goes beyond that, for sure. Uh, that definitely resonates. Uh, I think of the the Guru-Shisha relationship as not only the riverbed for the, the transmission of, um, of whatever, in this case, the, the Vedas, um, but also that it's a transmission of a way of being, uh, of a way of, of being in the world, of a way of relating to others. Um, an important thing that you note is that there are certain observances and a certain standard of ethical conduct that the student is expected to adhere to, um, it, it, it's sort of backwards than what, than I believe we're used to thinking of it in that the conduct is required up front in order to even receive initiation compared to, well, we go to the guru to learn how to abstain from alcohol or meat or, or sex or, or what have you. Um, have you come across this, this notion of, um, sort of the yamas and niyamas, to use the yoga terminology, or, or have you come across tensions in terms of what's expected of the students in order to receive initiation? Oh, definitely. I mean, it's not so much about uh, uh, necessarily in order to receive initiation, but more like once you've had initiation, basically you have to, you have to raise uh, the bar to, and to meet the standard, right? Um, 
And so there, there are a lot of, uh, we were talking about ritual purity before, and of course that relates to um, the yamas and niyamas, if you will, uh, which, which are, uh, you know, there's a long tradition uh, of Dharma Shastra. And so in the, in, the, in, the, in the Dharma Shastra texts, there is always a longer chapter on how the, the Vedic uh, student, the Brahmacharin, should uh, um, behave. And how, how, you know, also how he should behave in uh, in relation to to his teacher. So all of this is is has a long history of of, of um, encodedness, or or it has been encoded in 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 these texts uh, from you know from the time of the of the um, Dharma Sutras basically and the Dharma Shastric texts. And and the question is how do they negotiate that? In, in in modern India, right? So there there are many ideals or many rules, if you will, that are um, stated in in the Dharma Shastra texts um, that are followed in these schools. But some of them, you know, have started to change as well. Just to give you an example, uh, in most Dharma Shastra texts, uh, it is written that the Brahmachari, the student should um, sleep on the floor, right? No mattress, no, just on the bare floor. And, um, and so in some schools, in one particular school um, that I visited, I saw that there were bunk beds in, in, the, in, the, in that school. And um, so I inquired and, and the, the teacher um, that I asked the question to, he was he was a little embarrassed, you know. He he because he um, he knew perhaps that this was sort of the expected from the tradition, but that they had you know basically accommodated that. And and he basically said, "Oh, we didn't have the power to decide. The the sponsor, right? The the person who had sponsored the school decided to donate beds for the kids and and." Of course, the, the the donor didn't know that that um, students were supposed to to sleep on the bare floor, and um, therefore they were sleeping now in bunk beds. And this just this is just a perhaps a paradigmatic example of of how things are sometimes you know tolerated and certain changes that are clearly you know not to be uh, not not meant to be in 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 the classical text. But but are not necessarily followed anymore, or or sort of um, sometimes found ways in in which in which to uh, sort of uh, to accumulate that um, that rule. So this leads to another question that I had uh, that I wanted you to comment on. Um, you touch on it in your conclusion. In your experience in your research, to what extent? do you encounter preservation of tradition versus innovation of tradition? Right. So um, chapter six in, in, my, in my book is, is fully dedicated to, discuss, to discussing, uh, uh, you know, modernity and uh, tradition and innovation. And I've, I've argued that, um, you know, the, this tension between um, trying to preserve the Vedas uh, is certainly one aspect of continuity. You know, the, 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 the tradition is being kept alive in, in as far as the actual text is preserved as it has been preserved for many, many centuries. And uh, I would say innovation, there, there are many ways in which one could look at innovation, mostly uh, in relation to uh, vernacular forms of Hinduism, right? So how, how are these Brahmins as Vaidikas, so to speak, um, embedded in, in this larger context of um, uh, Maharashtra and Hinduism, right? So there's a lot of um, um, particularities, right? Uh, and, and there's a particular flavor to um, the, the Hinduism in which these schools are embedded. So there's the whole uh, context of, say, um, Maharashtra and Bhakti, or uh, as we were we were saying, the the actual uh, um, technology that that it comes with 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 uh, 
modernity, Facebook and, and whatnot. So there you can you can say that certain parts of the tradition are certainly um, or continue to be continue to be transmitted in the in the traditional way or orally, even though uh, also texts have uh, um, now been introduced or or recordings, as I was mentioning earlier. But but the result, so to speak, is still to or the aim is still to memorize this vast body of um, sound and to be able to reproduce that um, flawlessly. Um, however, there, there are many uh, ways in which, in which uh, innovations um, are being done. For example, um, there is one of, one of the, the chap, uh, sub-chapters in, 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 in um, chapter six looks at how a traditional Shrauta Yagna, which is this very old form of um, uh, Vedic ritual, fire Vedic ritual, um, is sort of uh, performed in contemporary India, and how, how that's really interesting because this particular ritual was a Rajasuya, and the Rajasuya is basically the um, um, the consecration uh, consecration ritual for for a king, right? There are no kings in India anymore, so how do they? How do they uh, justify that, and how do they perform that? Um, so there's that that particular section in 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 the book talks about this particular ritual and and the whole um, justification for the need of such a of such a ritual, right? And who who did who did they choose as as their king, for example, which turned out to be um, actually a farmer from from Rajasthan who claimed to have royal blood. Uh, or sorry, not Rajasthan, but Madhya Pradesh, I believe. Um, anyway, so the point is um, how how the how the certain rituals continue to be performed um, in to today's India, right? Um, and, and and the tensions that arise from that. Uh, I think I think that's that's one of the uh, things that fascinates me the most about this this subject is. Um, the relationship between trying to preserve a particular tradition and what that means with with this ideal of of a Brahmin, right? The ideal Brahmin versus um, negotiating all the um, changes and challenges that that uh, one confronts in the modern world, right? Um, oh, we're definitely in an age where tradition is being challenged like never before. I mean, tradition in general um, as a concept in various religious traditions on the planet. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how something as, as ancient and as perhaps faithful as Vedic transmission, Vedic recitation, it'll be interesting to see how it fares over the next century or so. Um, I have a question about something you commented on just now and also earlier in the interview in terms of this repertoire of, of, of utterance that the student is responsible for mastering, um, our audience may not have a sense of why you're so impressed. Can you give us a sense of how vast this utterance would be? Yes, well, of course, it depends on, it depends on, on, on which shaka we're talking about, but any shaka, I mean, they could, um, just to give you an example, um, there is a, a particular ritual in which the whole corpus of one particular shaka is recited, or a particular the the, the core of that corpus is recited, and um, I was able to witness um, such a recitation of the full uh, uh, of the full shaka basically, um, and that that takes typically a week of um, almost uninterrupted recitation. So Brahmins would wake up early, um, perform a ritual, and then uh, start with the recitation and uh, finish uh, at, at uh, sunset, right? And then the next morning, they would continue that. And that lasts for, for uh, yeah, about, about a week, about seven, eight days uh, of like, I don't know, eight to 10 hours a day of reciting uninterruptedly. 
So um, yeah, that's quite quite a bit, uh, quite a few hours of of uh, reciting from memory. Well, it's astonishing. It's astonishing, and it's it's difficult to really get a sense. Uh, it's it's difficult enough to memorize uh, a Shakespearean sonnet, <laughs> for example, exactly. or, or even the lines of a play if you're an actor. I mean, I have found that difficult in past to memorize, and uh, much less hours upon hours upon hours of of a virtual enunciation, of intonation, of utterance. Uh, I'm not sure if it's easier or more difficult. Um, uh, the fact that 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 you're not cognizing what you're uttering. This is you as if a songbird learning a sophisticated piece. It's just it's just sound. It's sound and, and energy and vibration. I don't know if it would be easier or harder, uh, more difficult to not know what you're saying. But nevertheless, um, can one imagine memorizing hours upon hours upon hours of anything with precise pitch? It's it's staggering. And unless someone actually has a taste of it, they 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 would not understand why you were so awestruck that you were pulled to study this uh, for two degrees now. So, is there anything that um, uh, let's end with with a, a general question in terms of did anything really surprise you about your research? Did anything strike you? Did did you encounter something that you really didn't expect that you want to share with us? Hmm, that's a good question. Let me think about that. Well, what, what, I guess one of the things that really fascinated me um, was the, the example of the Veda Mandir, which is a temple in Nasik, in, in, in a town in, in Maharashtra. And there is a temple there uh, dedicated to the Veda. It's called Veda Mandir. And there the Veda is represented as a huge um, um, sculpture of uh, a book um, bound in, in a Western style. Um, so the, like a book, the books that we know uh, in the West. Um, and, and it's made of, of marble, it's huge. And it has uh, the letters, uh, it, it has engraved in Devanagari um, one, one uh, uh, one verse from the Rigveda and the Gayatri Mantra, um, and and um, you know it's being worshipped as Bhagavan Ved. It's a form of God, and so that that was really surprising to me because until then, you know, I had read Fritz style where he where he you know writes if if there's one thing the Vedas are not are books. Um, and then I, you know, see this temple where I see the Vedas being represented as, as a book, right, as a Western-bound book. Um, and so that, that was something that, that, that surprised me. And so um, I've been also working a little bit uh, uh, on that uh, for, for this book, but uh, perhaps also um, for, a, for a future article, I I'm, 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 might be working on that a little more. Um, yeah, that's just one example. But but to be to be honest, I was I was awestruck every day uh, during my my field work uh, for this book. So uh, sounds yeah. like sounds like quite the journey. So in addition to this this uh, this bound uh, Veda's Murti at this temple, uh, is what is the what is your current project? What are you researching at the moment? Um, yes, well, I've actually moved uh, uh, away, so to speak, from the Vedic tradition uh, in the last few years, and I've done a, a couple of different things, and I'm, I'm currently working on popular urban religion, and I'm particularly interested in the little shrines uh, that we see uh, on the street, wayside shrines. And so I've, um, I've written, uh, I've, I've put together a, a, an edited volume, a special issue with, with a colleague of mine, Raphael Bois, in, in Paris. And um, I'm looking forward to actually writing um, my second book on, um, so to speak, street religion, quote unquote, um, in a particular neighborhood in Pune. And I'm basically, looking at how um, um, material religion, uh, 
space production or, or production of, of sacred space and um, basically the display of religiosity in, 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 the, in, in the public sphere and the public space um, is, is negotiated in, in Pune. That's my, my current project or one of my current projects, yes. So you've gone from these ancient esoteric traditional utterances to the modern streets of Pune. This is quite, exactly. <laughs> this is quite, quite the diversity of scholarship. Um, so that's great. I believe we have taken uh, more than enough of your time for one day. So I want to thank you for joining us for today's interview. Oh, thank you for the invitation and for giving me a chance to um, revisit my own work. It's been sitting on a shelf for the past few years, basically, and now it, it was a nice, nice way of coming back to it. It's our pleasure. We're always, we're always. Uh, by the time the book is out, we've moved on to the next project. Uh, I, I, I know the feeling. Now. Um, <laughs> so, uh, once again, for our listeners, we have been speaking with Dr. Borayin Larios, who is assistant professor uh, at the Institute for South Asian, Tibetan, and Buddhist Studies in Vienna. Uh, we've been talking with him about his open access book, Embodying the Vedas, Traditional Vedic Schools of Contemporary Maharashtra. Thanks very much. And to our listeners, uh, until next time, keep reading. Take care. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.